0: How are you doing? And welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast bringing you news and tech from around Ireland and across the world. Every Friday evening on RT Radio as well. Or, of course, you can get it first anytime you like with your favorite podcasting app from Spotify, uh, Apple, or Google, or wherever you get podcasts. Uh, On the show this week, we're talking about travel returning. And I'm not talking about Ryanair and flights. I'm talking about something out of this world, literally. Uh, The epic Apple battle. The hottest rumor of the week is so cool. Can't wait to share this with you. And also, Google have announced their plans for working from home, which we're quite impressed with to chat about it all. I'm joined by our editor in chief,
1: Nile Kitson. How are you, Nile? Not too bad. Now, I mean, you're you're after. I actually can can I mention something that's cool, but not really. And I know
0: what you're going to mention. And I was. <laughs> it, this is the coolest thing ever.
1: Go on, well, tell that's, everybody. That's, that's not going nuts. For anyone that watches Agents of SHIELD, oh. uh, season six, episode three, is called now. I mean, this this shows how rare my surname is. Uh, the episode is called Fear and Loathing on Planet Kitson. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I, I can assure you, Planet Kitson is very neat and tidy in reality, but I had a look at the trailer and it looks like an awful place altogether. But you know, it's it's fake news. Fake news, people.
0: I hope that you're going to download the artwork for Fear and Loathing on Planet Kitson and use it on everything. On your Twitter, well, on your Facebook, on your profiles. That's, that's just the new image. <laughs> it's, it's probably there to be done, isn't it? That's my new background. <laughs> that's my new Zoom
1: background. Planet gets them.
0: So listen, uh, let's talk about uh, Google
1: working from home. What do you think of the new uh, plans been announced? Yeah. Now, here's the interesting thing. All the Q1 results have come out and all the tech giants have done fantastically well. Um, no, they haven't done fantastically well.
0: They have done disgustingly well. Okay, it yes. It really is. When you when you see the numbers that they've been churning over thanks to COVID, it's just like, you know, whatever. Yeah. Every cloud have having a silver lining, but I mean, it was just ridiculous the amount of money. Yeah, they I mean,
1: a- 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 AWS, their revenues are up 32%. Google, theirs were up 34%. Amazon. Um, <laughs> They're, they're all doing spectacularly yeah, well. Listen, I've nothing COVID.
0: wrong with them doing well. It's just the fact that they did well out of COVID is kind of like, uh,
1: anyway. Well, yeah. So now we are, we are reaching sort of the, I don't want to say end game, but the light at the end of the pandemic is approaching. Uh, companies that are, you know, put in place um, contingency plans uh, are now sort of reevaluating them. Now that people are are getting vaccinated, they will be available to to work from offices again uh, in a couple of months' time. So, what do you do? Twitter, uh, when everything kicked off, said, okay. that's fine, people. You can work from home forever. Uh, the public service, I think they're on. Uh, the idea will be that they will be able to work from home 20% of the time uh, on top of being able to ask for remote working mm. and, and that sort of thing as well. Um, of course, we have the Our Rural Future Plan, which is designed to get people out of the cities and get them working in uh, regional hubs, which is a fantastic idea that we've, we've endorsed many times uh, on the show. But uh, now Google has come out and they've said, "Okay, uh, right, it's it's time you all started coming back into work." Uh, not immediately, uh, I think. Uh, when is it, Dusty? Is it is it September, October? They're they're Later looking into in the getting year, people yeah. back in. Yeah, uh, so it's coming. They're going to ask people to come back in the office. Mm. Uh, but there are a few there are a few wrinkles in there. Well, you've you've got them on paper. I oh, wouldn't call them wrinkles i I think this is really good you're obviously not
0: impressed um uh, they've said that you can split your time between home and office and naturally it will depend on what team you're working on what project you're working on uh, because being in the office may make more sense or if it doesn't then you have the choice of doing maybe two days from home three days in the office that's kind of their plan yeah the, they also have, and this is the bit that I really like, is that they're going to introduce a thing where you can work for up to four weeks away from wherever your home normally
1: is or wherever your office normally is. Okay, so, so here's the thing, right? My, my take on these um, wonderful offices that mm. multinationals are incredibly good at developing Um, because there's a talent shortage. So naturally they want to attract the best people. Of course, these are places that are designed to keep you in them for as long as possible and not have you mind. That's That's the goal of them. They're not giving you snacks because they think you're awesome. They're giving you snacks because there aren't so many people out there that can do your job and they want to hang on to you for as long as possible. I guarantee you that as soon as the labor shortage in the tech sector is uh, addressed, offices will be getting a lot more basic. Saying that now, mark my words. Mm -hmm. Anywho, uh, so by saying, okay, you can work up to four weeks away. It doesn't matter where you are from. Um, Can you imagine going on holidays? You see, that's where you're painting that
0: like a negative thing. Can you imagine going on holidays and having to take your work with you? Is that where, where you're going? Basically, yeah. All right. Now, let me put it to you another way, right? Imagine going on your holidays and being able to extend that holiday because you can continue to work. So um, if you have four weeks and you want to go to Australia, you don't want to go to Australia for two weeks. That's a bummer. All right. But what if Mm -hmm. you could go to Australia and take your first two weeks as holidays and then the second two weeks you would work during the day as usual, yet you still have your evenings and your weekends off to do Aussie type things. Okay. Put another snag on the Barbie, mate.
1: (laughs) But what if you're like, you know, a regular person? And you realize that you've got two weeks holidays, but you've got a further four hanging over you where you can't do Aussie type things. You just have to, you know, find an office space somewhere and do exactly what you would normally do. I, uh, I I'm very much on the opposite side to you
0: on Nile uh, on this. In fact, HubSpot do it even better. They will give you up to three months uh, outside of the office to work wherever it is that you want. Obviously, with agreement with with all parties. But where yeah. I see this, and where I, I've seen this, is people who are based in Ireland working for HubSpot, uh, but would be from the states. And particularly with COVID, they're able to go mm. back to the states, all right, and they're able to work mm. there for a month or or two months. That is amazing. And people are strung all over the world. The amount of people I know now that are kind of, well, well, living permanently in Australia. Uh, I know quite a few people who are over in Asia, but they come back. Dubai is a great example. All right. Everybody comes back at least once a year from Dubai. Uh, People who are in the States or Canada, they always come back. Um, And instead of coming back for a weekend, as many people I know in New York would or Boston. Well, why not come back for a week or two weeks? I think it's great. And the only only reason that uh, they have the three month uh, restriction in there is because you're into all kinds of EU employment law about, well, where do you conduct the work uh, dictates where you pay your taxes. And once you go over the three months, it starts to make things complicated. Whereas essentially... I
1: I remember during the ash cloud, mm. if you remember that in the the last decade, there was an awful lot of concern over that, that people were through no fault of their own Mm. overstaying and having to um, having to declare okay. income and pay tax on it.
0: So would it be fair to say then that uh, between yourself and myself, if we were Google employees, that I would be the one going, yay, let's go and explore the world and do our work while we're at it. And you'd be the one saying, no, I want to stay at home with the cat.
1: Uh, well, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with my cat, first of all. Um, yeah, I'm, I see. I'm just, I'm always concerned because these companies want to keep you in the office as much as possible. They want to keep you productive for as much as possible. Well, I mean, perhaps that's not, you know, uh, any business wants their people to be as productive as possible, but I, I think they couch these things in terms that sound benign, but the work will always be there for you. It doesn't, you know, you will find that it doesn't matter wh- when you go on holiday, the work will be there when you get back. Um, Netflix, I think, is a good example. They don't mm-hmm. have um, actual holidays as such. You can take time off whenever you want. Uh, sounds great in theory. You know what? The same work is going to be there when you get back. And if you're hammered, uh, hammered work w- with work before you go on holidays, you're going to be double hammered by the time you get back in the office.
0: Now, speaking of holidays and travel... Yes. And venturing gently upon the Ryanair.com website. All right, (laughs) What's your cancellation policy if I have to? No, you can change. It's fine. Um, Our our friend Jeff Bezos likes to think a little bit bigger than Ryanair or British Airways or Mm -hmm. Willie Walsh or any any of the heads in aviation because he uh, has got his own airline, if you want to call it that, called Blue Origin. And he is Mm -hmm. selling a seat on the first Blue Origin flight into space.
1: Yeah, take that, Elon Musk. (laughs) Uh,
0: Basically, what he's doing is he's doing an online auction at the moment. All right. Uh, They're going to do their uh, initial flight, I think, sometime in July. And there's one seat like free on it, uh, as Mm -hmm. it were. And they're saying, well, if somebody wants to bid for it, well, they're welcome to come along for the ride. Yeah. And they're doing an online auction up to May the 19th. The winner will be announced on June the 12th and the flight uh, will be on July the 20th. And uh, all the money is going to charity. And you were saying, take that, Elon Musk. But actually, Elon Musk is doing the same thing, where instead of having one seat, he's doing an entire SpaceX flight up into orbit uh, with, I think, four people on it. And uh, all of the money from the four seats goes to a, a children's charity, I think.
1: Oh, okay right
0: good uh, good
1: for those guys so, so, i'm just but, thinking
0: yeah if you if you want to expand yourself past spain
1: <laughs> <laughs> there are options out there that's one way. Uh, beyond spain i'm thinking of going to you know cork or tipperary <laughs> or <laughs> you know leitrim that's that's my level of of ambition at the moment but I mean, hopefully go. by the there time this show goes out we'll we'll know a little bit more Hopefully not. we will. Hopefully we will. Listen,
0: <laughs> uh, I've I've got a great, great, great rumory gossip for you. But first, uh, let's okay. talk about uh, Apple and Epic. Yeah. This is just in the numbers are blowing. Have you been through the numbers that Epic have been giving for for the games?
1: Well, Epic. Okay, can we can we do the background? Yeah, for, do the background. I'm, yes. Well, yes. Sorry, perfect. sorry. I'm jumping. Okay. I'm jumping in, and I'm assuming everybody knows. Yeah, give us the background. Yeah. here's here's the background. Uh, Epic Games, developers of Fortnite, um, of course we're, it's a cross-platform game, so you can play it on pretty much, um, you know, Xbox, PC, um, uh, PlayStation, uh, and of course, on your phone. Uh, and it's a session-based game. You go in, you play an hour with your mates and you get kicked out when you get killed and all this sort of thing. And it's it's massively, massively popular. And Epic went to Apple and said, do you, do you know what? We've got our own kind of virtual currency here. We, we don't really need your your payment system. Can we, can we get a deal here? To which Apple said, well, no, um, it's our payment system. You have to use it uh, we don't really care if it's your own virtual currency or whatever, but you have to use our payment system to which Epic said, well, hang on. Well, well let's try something else then. Why Why are we paying you so much in developer fees? To which Apple said, because. And then, <laughs> uh, to which uh, Epic said, well, why not? Uh, or why? And Apple said, because. So uh, this has gone to court now. Uh, Apple pulled Fortnite from the App uh, App Store. App Store. Um, Epic has said this is completely unfair. You're acting like a monopoly. Uh, you have a monopoly in the app space. Uh, therefore, we want to dismantle that. We want people to mm-hmm. be able to negotiate better terms than the current 30% Apple takes on payment processing. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what you're doing is also putting pressure on other services that would perhaps look to compete with you. So um, that's, that's the background. This has gone to court now. Uh, the buzz is that Epic is kind of not quite onto a loser, but should be looking towards uh, a lengthy appeals process as opposed to um, uh, a, a decision that would help them. Uh, so you've got the further details, Dusty. Well, just the numbers. I, I
0: think Epic... Hmm. I think they're both correct. It's Apple's system they should be able to charge what they want. Okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you look at the numbers, you kinda go, whoa, hang on a minute. All right. Um Fortnite made Epic nine billion dollars in twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen. All, All right. right. Now that, that that it's a lot of money. I'm fair play to them if they made and developed and didn't don't care, right? But what Apple are saying is they want thirty percent of that nine billion. Essentially, they want three billion dollars you know, just for making it available on the App Store.
1: That's you know what? insane. You I,
0: was, I was saying a, a few minutes ago about the profits during COVID from these big te- tech companies. Tech companies are obscene. That's mm. obscene.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it just shows the, the move towards services that we've seen in the last few years. People are hanging on to their phones longer, uh, but it's all about the services that you can use on them. Uh, and I think this mm. is a fantastic example. Like if Fortnite had flopped, Do you think we would be having this case right now? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Fortnite.
0: Oh, yeah. Fortnite aren't the only ones. I mean, Spotify have got a huge problem. And and I I understand there's various costs in any business. OK, so you've got distribution hmm. costs and you've got advertising costs and you've got marketing, whatever. OK, essentially what Spotify are saying is, is that if our cost to be part of Apple is 30 percent of what we make. All right. That's Hmm. a huge chunk, all right? Um, Whereas Apple are doing the same service, but of course, they don't have to pay that 30% to be on the App Store or to provide Hmm. the service. So, you know, it's way too much of a competitive advantage to Apple. And I think where people are coming in and they're saying is Apple phones are so popular around the world. It's like Hmm. they've gone past just being a brand. They're almost getting into a, a utility Size, if you like. And when you get that big, you need to be more careful about what you charge, or you're seen more as a public service than you are as a commercial
1: entity. Does that make sense? Uh, while well, your argument makes sense, I'm not sure okay. I agree with it. But, well, it's like, it's like uh, Facebook, okay? Argument. So
0: Facebook is the social media platform that, I, I, mm-hmm. of course, there are other social media platforms you can of use. Of course. But the vast majority of people are, are on Facebook. So should Facebook be allowed to control how the majority of people on this little planet use social media? Or should there be some kind of an independent board looking at
1: it? Well, by their by their own admission, there should be, and they actually have one. Uh, I know they have one, and they did the Donald Trump uh, thing this did, week yeah. as well. Yeah, they, they maintained his
0: ban. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think uh, what was I was a very nice argument about that. They said that was going to be a lose lose for Facebook. <laughs> <laughs>
2: mm, yeah. So if
0: they put Trump back on, uh they nobody will be happy and if they if they kept him off, nobody will be happy or whatever. So they said the great thing about having that independent board was Facebook could just go not our problem.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The independent it, people it's said so. it's up for review I think in 6 months. Uh so mm-hmm. it's not an absolute ban. Uh but I've a feeling that they'll mm-hmm. uphold it. I think mm-hmm. I think people are hoping that Trump will just sort of slink into the shadows and become, you know, Less relevant and less of a pain in the neck, but we can I don't also don't think hope that's for, the man's style.
0: We can hope for an end to global warming or world peace. We shall continue. Um, but back to Epic and their battle mm. in the courtroom with Apple. I think Apple taking 30 percent of somebody you know, kind of that big, it's I think Epic have got a case. Um the numbers on other games, though, it's interesting to see how these these people think and work and stuff like that with the numbers. Uh, mm-hmm. Epic paid, uh, I think, it was one and a half billion dollars for a game called Batman Arkham. Uh huh. In fact, actually, I think it was a series of games. And what they did was they gave it away to for free. They yeah. literally paid Warner, I think, it was one and a half million. Okay, that's great. We'll take that, and then we we'll just give it away for free. All right. Mm. So Epic got. Uh, 600,000 new accounts from that. That was about to two fifty in an account or something like that. And when mm-hmm. you're thinking about marketing and uh, all of that kind of, you're thinking about, well, how much is it costing me to acquire a new user? $2.50 mm. is not bad. Considering, like, you know, you would pay on average maybe a euro per click on Google just to get somebody to look at your website. to Have somebody mm. signed up and in the system with their details and all that kind of stuff, uh, uh, very good. But it is... For for people who kind of like living normal lives like you and I, it's like you spent what <laughs> one point <laughs> five million and gave it away. That's insane. So it is telephone numbers, but I don't know. I think I I think fair play to Epic, and they should be allowed to keep their money, and so should Spotify. I'm very much on, Yeah, on well, there, Spotify
1: so. is an interesting case because uh, there is a direct competitor in Apple Music sitting on iPhones already, which comes with a three-month free trial. Uh, and the EU is already on Apple's case. They've mm. said that this is anti-competitive behavior and they've actually charged Apple uh, with that. So uh, Apple will be going to court to de- defend their position. I think Spotify's case is much, much stronger because there is a direct competitor uh, on the iPhone, if it was a matter of you know there is a Fortnite clone or Apple had something that was very similar to Fortnite that they had developed themselves, uh, I would certainly consider them to be to be in very hot water over that. Mm. But um, the fact that Apple has a directly competing product with Spotify, uh, I think, is um, very it's seriously anti-competitive. Really, you know, similarly, the way that you can only use the iOS App Store, you can't use a third-party app store uh, on the iPhone. Um, that's that's another you know point of uh, point of uh, legal point that should be uh, explored as well. Of course, Apple will say you know we provide a superior service than say Google Play. You know we've, we 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 got better privacy, better security, and um, better reliability, better quality of app uh, yeah. overall. Uh, and as somebody who who uses Android, you, you'd have to agree with that. Mm.
0: Oh, listen, I I, I totally agree with that. And Apple have costs and and running it within the App Store and stuff. And I think where the US authorities and the EU authorities are coming from, they're going, yes. But you've got to weigh up the cost of running your App Store with Mm. the cost of, you know, what you're taking in. And one of the claims that have been made is that Apple is making near on 80% profit on the App Mm. Store. So it's only yeah. cost out of everything it makes in the app store. It's only costing twenty percent of that to actually run the service. The other eighty percent is just money in the bank. So,
1: yeah, yeah, it's it's and it's it, as you say, it's been an exceptionally strong year for services um, for cloud. Yeah, thanks to uh,
0: yeah, to COVID. yeah. I, um, anyway, that, that's that's what's happening with uh, Epic and Apple, and that is a case that is going to go on. And in fact, the EU case is going to go on, I think, as well, with the yeah. uh, charge of breaking anti-competition rules. Um, last story for you today, Niall, uh, the hottest rumour of the week. Okay, hit me. Hottest rumour of the week. Uh, well, actually, probably a few, the last few weeks. Uh, a, a reliable analyst, a Chinese guy, I won't bother with his name, um, but he has come out in the past and has a good track record of saying what Apple are up to and what is coming from Apple. Mm -hmm. And he is saying that they are working on a foldable phone. Okay, These things have been out and there's been, but he is the most reliable person to date to have come out and also said that. So
1: he's, he's kind of at that level where if he says it, it's true. Okay, so are we talking foldable in, like, the Microsoft Duo or foldable in the Samsung, uh, Didn't you know, say. are we looking to expand to increase the screen size by default or to make the phone smaller? If you, if you see where I'm coming, like, is, is I the I see where you're coming aim, from. I think yeah. it's
0: to make the screen bigger. Um, from the rumours that are around, it's going to be an 8-inch phone which is going Mm. to be, you know, kind of in and around the side, maybe even bigger than the smartphones we're used to at the moment. Now, whether Mm. that's an 8-inch phone when it's folded
1: or whether it's an 8-inch phone when it's opened, I don't know. Oh, it'd have to be when it's open because, you know, tablets start at 7 inches.
0: Okay, good point. I agree with you. Um, Mm. They say that the phone should be on sale by 2023. Mm. So we can probably expect an announcement Late next year Right Um, Here's the thing that will just make you laugh Mm? Because it made me smile Uh, The other rumour Is that the screen that Apple are going to put Into this wonderful foldable phone Will be made By Samsung Samsung. (laughs) (laughs) So if you would like the Apple foldable phone Go out and get yourself A Samsung phone right now
1: (laughs) <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you will pretty much have it <laughs> there you go anyway listen that is the news for this week Now, thanks for keeping us up to date on everything do remember uh, that we also keep you up to date every single day of the week on all things tech with hourly updates and daily newsletters you can grab those for free with our compliments on the website at techcentral.ie <laughs> This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. At this stage, you're familiar with the term Industry 4.0, which is using technologies like automation, robotics, 5G and data science to make factories smarter and more efficient. Last month in Ireland, Confirm, the Science Foundation of Ireland Research Centre for Smart Manufacturing, opened the doors on its state-of-the-art 5G innovation testbed at the University of Limerick. This is where companies can collaborate with researchers to create new wireless networks. Solutions. Professor Conor McCarthy is director of Confirm and he spoke to Niall Kitson about his views on the future of manufacturing.
1: So Conor, there was an original vision for what, con- what Confirm would look like as a, a centre, uh, I guess sort of a, a product of its times in many ways. Uh, we're a few years on from it. So to what extent has that vision been uh, fulfilled and perhaps even uh, surpassed?
2: Yeah, thank you. So, so thank you, Niall. The confirmed Centre was set up in 2016 with a, a vision around, really around Industry 4.0 uh, and cyber-physical manufacturing systems and digital digital supply chains. And um, really, it was uh, an opportunity um, funded by SFI, Science of Nation Ireland. Um, we, we brought together, at the time, 42 industry partners and about 45 academics. And we, we had a lot of workshops around sort of what was uh, let's say academic push of novel ideas and novel technologies coming out from academia and the research uh, in the universities and institutes of technology and then we, we we call that let's say the academic push and then industry we're looking at well we want this or we need this or we like this or this is too far out of scope or this is too far down the line or whatever so we we arrived at a sort of a research program based around to sort of the sweet spot between academic push and industry pull. And we, we kind of crafted sort of a research program around that. And, and really what we came out there was the research needed to work with industry around smart products, smart machines, smart production systems, and smart supply chains. So really that was the sort of initial um, piece of work. And, and then we, we, you know, we looked for the funding and we were very successful to get 25 million euros from SFI to build our research center. Uh, roll on a couple of years Th- those are still the topics of our sort of our, our research our, our applied research program with industry however the, the projects have um so what happens is the industry come to us then with particular problems in those domains and wh- what we do is then we work with industry around sort of a, a collaborative research agreement and we have uh we you know sort of collaborative research program with industry to solve problems in those domains and that's an initiative process, and that takes, you know, in some cases, up to, to a year to really articulate what the research is about, um, and and what, should, what what the research question is. And then we work, and then we bring in the academics who will then ultimately sort of deliver on those projects, and the projects sort of go into the into the operational phase where they actually need to carry out the research. And what that what does that mean? Really, what we do then is we hire researchers, uh, PhD students, and postdoc. Researchers and senior research fellows to actually do the deliver the research with industry, and that that's um, really exciting in insofar as that sort of the, the research questions they they start at a certain what we call TRL level technology readiness level, um, where it might just be an idea or it might be a more mature idea, and we bring it up through to a higher, tier, a, a higher TRL level.
1: So I suppose you're about five years into into that grand plan. So I imagine certain technologies have uh, have improved and certain as uh, some have, uh, you know, uh, perhaps regressed or, or fallen out of favour at the moment. So what kind of uh, solutions have you found uh, grow to really fit this notion of Industry 4.0? Uh, I mean, I'm looking at virtual spaces as one example.
2: Yes, so so I, I guess the, the, the main what we're seeing at the moment is a, a big drive around sort of uh, factory data, factory and supply chain data, uh, and taking um, taking that data. Capture, well, first of all, capturing the data uh, in the right format, and then making sense of that data using statistical tools and so on. So we're we're seeing a lot of um, projects in industry trying to understand what... So all the machines are there, obviously making the products and so on and capturing all this um, data. What we're seeing then is, can we derive derive sort of an understanding of what's happening in the manufacturing environment from that data? So what that requires you to do is is to first of all capture the data using sensors and then uh, make um, that data into information. And that requires lots of different techniques in terms of, you know, statistical models and data analytics, and then an understanding of the actual process itself. So the data is, you know, coming, it's just, you know, sets of numbers, if you like, coming from the sensors, but then turning that data into knowledge and to make decisions on that um, knowledge based on the data is where the kind of art of the manufacturing piece comes in. So to understand the processes, you could be machining a part or you could be you know, polishing apart or you could be doing anything. Um, So the data needs to sort of be contextualized into the the application that's generating that data and then to make decisions on that data. And we use a lot of sort of modeling tools then to make decisions on that data uh, and hopefully to optimize then the, the process.
1: One well, would also imagine that when you're adopting a, a, a data-based approach to manufacturing, that it, it doesn't become a simple matter of rinse and repeat as traditional manufacturing uh, models would have been. So to which extent does this allow an element of uh, of customization without having to recalibrate a, a, a manufacturing chain from beginning to end?
2: Yeah, that's it. So, so i think that the research question would have started out back in 2016 as mask this concept of mass customization to your point um which is you know different pro- well different kind of flavors of the same product coming off the production line so it's customized to my tastes or needs or to your tastes and your needs or whatever and we see some of that you know in the mainstream you can, you can see you know uh you can buy Cans of Coca Cola with your name on the side, you know, and, and there's just there's twenty different ver- twenty different names in a stall, and you can pick the can that has your name on it, and so on. Chocolate bars and things, so that's kind of a little bit of customization. But this mass customization idea of every product being quite different is is difficult to achieve because your systems have to adapt um, to to make that product um, to your or my needs, and there's a whole sort of architecture around that, and that has been a sort of a a mantra go, you know, since 20, I guess, since around 2012, really. That, but what we're seeing, and this is an interesting point from the pandemic, is the it, mass customization, yes, it's still there and still important. But another thing that's become equally important, which relies on the same type of technology, it, is, is sort of to, to do with kind of reconfigurability. So, you know, in the pandemic, we we saw difficulties in, in getting PPE, for example. And, um, and some of the reasons for that, you know, it's difficult for industry to just to, to reprofile their manufacturing lines to make rather than making, you know, particular clothing items to make PPE or something like that to, to reconfigure a manufacturing line. is quite a difficult thing to do, especially in, in, in a highly regulated environment, which Ireland is kind of very strong in, in med tech and pharma and ICT and so on, um, to reconfigure your manufacturing line. So there's a big move I, I see, um, what kind of maybe started out as a mass customization journey has become a reconfigurability journey where we can we can reconfigure production lines to make different products based on customer demand. Like the global pandemic had changed to PPE for a long time and then, you know, it may change back now as, as things change and so on. So to be to reconfigure production lines, is, seems to be an emerging topic that is very interesting.
1: Of course, we're, we're now uh, having to look at reconfiguring um, logistics uh, as well, on account of uh, the fact that our, our nearest trading partner is no longer uh, a member of the European Union. Have, are companies coming to you uh, w- w- looking to explore problems to do with how to uh, improve the um, efficiency of, uh, of logistics?
2: Yeah, so that's really that has come, uh, and it's still it's still a, still a major issue uh, around the sort of global supply chain. And um, we can see it; we can we can all see it uh, everywhere. You know, we go to the hardware shop; things are getting more expensive because the demands on you know different products, wood, for example, is getting scarce at the moment, and things like that. And that's all to do with supply chain. And we and so two things have happened uh, in in well, a number of things have happened, but I suppose two major is COVID nineteen and then Brexit. So even without COVID-19, Brexit has disrupted the supply chain. Um, so to the point, actually, that in the Confirm Centre, we we you know we, we sort of chair the, the National Supply Chain Academic Network, which is set up just like about one month after COVID-19 um, well, um, hit, basically, to, to just to, to get some sort of academic sort of viewpoints on uh, COVID-19, sorry, uh, academic view on supply chain and how we're going to meet the challenges of supply chain um bottlenecks if you like so you know we've met the industry uh, over a number a number of occasions with different workshops over the last year and a half around supply chain issues so there is you know major things to be done on supply chain so what you can do the, the good news is i suppose that yes there is there is bottlenecks in supply chain the good news is that as we become a more digitalized society and digitalized manufacturing base that you can now uh Reroute. You know, you can you can actually in supply chains you can look at different models of rerouting. For example, so you know, as the ports move, you know, we don't know we don't like the UK not being such a, an accessible land bridge. For example, um, can you reroute into directly into Europe? And you can see Ross Lair opening up that 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 sort of line into France, and that's a rerouting issue. But you know, you have to think about the product itself has to be rerouted. So there's a huge ecosystem around that that needs to be taken care of, how, you know, a lot of paperwork in some cases and so on, and um, that has to be dealt with. So as we move to a more digitalized society, we, we can see um, supply chains, um, you know, becoming more digitalized. That means you can reroute stuff much quicker and we can we can build models that look at that particular rerouting and sort of you know, all, that, all that sort of activity around supply chain. So I think in the future, as we become, and, you know, one good reason to be more digitalized is that we, we can understand the demands for products as well. So it's not just about the movement of the product from one country to another or movement of parts that make a product from one country to another. It's also around the demand signals coming from from industry, coming from the consumer. If there's a huge demand in one particular area that the supply chain lights up and is, is alerted to that particular change in demand and can respond then. And that's where all this information and digitalization in the factory and supply chain need to be connected. So if we see you know consumer peaks in certain products that we can respond or different factories in the world can maybe say okay you know we're going to have to you know start making product X now because there's a huge demand in Europe for that at the moment and it's going to be there for the next eight, 18 months or something so let's reconfigure this production to make that product for this time so i, I, I see a world in the future being much more agile and responsive to changes in consumer demands uh, and that will be enabled by digitalization in supply chain and the factories the factories have to know that they need to change tack, if you like, um, to to respond to certain uh, peaks in, and then also looking at the supply chain, sort of, you know, uh, you know, a lot of the, the business models. Um, another way to think about supply chain is the business model. So a lot of, you know, toys, a lot of stuff is made. You know, for, for just like like you know, toys for example, the model is you know, make lots and lots of toys in in, in you know Asian countries and so on. Uh, so the, the business model is make as much of the product as you can as cheap as possible, and then high, high, high shipping cost into Europe and sell then in Europe. But as the models change, you know we 're looking at a more of a sort of localized manufacturing industry and moving back towards like the cottage industries of the past where we make product locally um, um, for local demand so, so rather than sort of you know doing everything in one part of the world you know uh, designing in one part of the world manufacturing it in another part of the world distributing it in a different part of the world and sales in a different part and so we can see maybe a world where it's much more localised um, so we can make sort of batch products locally for that particular market and I think that's a very interesting concept because what that does it allows us to think about sort of reinvigorating our cities. so this concept of urban manufacturing for example where you know, at the moment, manufacturing uh, happens, you know, at the outskirts of towns and, and sort of, you know, uh, in large greenfield sites because basically production lines are large, they're they're horizontal. The, the, the product is, is mass produced along these production lines. As we move to a more agile society or manufacturing base, I think we're going to see more bespoke manufacturing where, you know, we can put maybe some manufacturing in city centres to rejuvenate, you know, as in a, lot of, a lot of, you know, the shopping and so goes online and um, we, we can see maybe, well, let's, you know, reinvigorate the city centres with some manufacturing activities where we can make, okay, we won't make a big, we won't make a, a car in a city centre building, but we might make some, a contact lens, for example, or some parts of, of the manufacturing process can happen in city centres. So I see a world in the future where we can actually start to look at manufacturing being much more local and in cities and, and servicing local communities, in that type of model or kind of factory in a box model or sort of, factories in, in, in city centres and so on. So I think that's an interesting concept we're looking at and confirm at the moment as well.
1: Part of the technologies, I suppose, that that would make that happen really is the advent of 3D printing, which is very much, a, it seems to be a, a much cleaner alternative to, to sort of what people imagine manufacturing is at the moment, like using, you know, lots of heavy materials, lots of, you know, lots of things like cement and metals and all this sort of thing. Um Whereas 3D printing offers a a, a much cleaner alternative. Um, To what extent do you see 3D printing playing a role in getting these factories into, you know, smaller spaces that it will almost be a a matter of an automated facility where you can just feed in what you want and you'll you'll get your product out in the quantity uh, that has been ordered?
2: Yeah, so, so 3D printing, and I suppose this the whole concept of um, not just 3D printing, but sort of additive manufacturing and subtractive manufacturing. So what we're used to really is we start off with a, a block of material and we remove material to end up, with, end up with the final product. And there's definitely advantages for that uh, in terms of sort of mass production. It's it's quick. Um, the material, um, the st- the, the material properties, you know, are, are sort of of the block material, sort of remain in the in the new in the new product. And the manufacturing, then it's a different process. It, is basically it, it builds up the the shape using sort of a, a deposition of material in, in a layered format. So it's sort of it's like a printer in three D. It just it, it prints the material, and there's definitely advantages for that in, in terms of customization of products. You can geometry is no longer an issue. You can I can print a part. Um, and then a completely different part of the same material in, in the next batch. So there's definitely advantages to it. There's, there's also constraints insofar as the, it's, um, at the moment anyway, it, it, it's, it, it takes more time to, to, to make that part. So at the moment, it seems to be for bespoke applications and very specialist applications, but it's moving more mainstream, but there is a constraint in terms of the time it takes to print a product. You know, so so it definitely has applications. And it, it, I see it, it's been used now in, in biomedical field and it's been used in, uh, in gas turbine repair and it's, it's from across the board. So it's definitely becoming more mainstream and, and it has, definitely has advantages. I don't think we're going to have a world where we will completely uh, produce everything with 3D printing. I think it'll be a, a hybrid. So you could imagine maybe a part, some of the, you know, uh, maybe the main piece of the part be, might be cast or, or produced in the normal way. And then you maybe add the customization using 3D printing on top of that and you could have a hybrid approach. So it definitely has uh, advantages. It won't be you know, the, uh, the panacea or a silver bullet that will solve all manufacturing and supply chain issues. But I think it definitely has a, a, a niche um, field and it, it seems to be becoming more mainstream. And a lot of stuff they do now is, is they, they can actually sinter. So they 3D print parts and they can actually heat treat it then afterwards and they can make it very strong. So they're starting to overcome some of these limitations in terms of the strength of these particular uh, products as well, which is one of the drawbacks initially anyway of these products, the, the, the strength of the materials because it's a layered structure and anybody who's interested in the layered structures knows that these uh, things they delaminate. Um, they're prone to delamination where you know you get a small crack in between two of the layers and that crack can actually run and, and form a de- thing called a delamination, which can weaken the product. Um so that, that has been an issue, but now they're overcoming that with sintering techniques and so on. So we're starting to see some very strong products coming out from 3D printing. So I think it definitely has a, a, pl- a place in the future and it, it definitely overcomes some of the challenges of supply chain because you can manufacture locally, um, you know, to a certain all you need to do is download the, 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 the CAD drawing essentially of the, pro- the part and press print and it'll print the part for you. So it, has, it definitely has advantages.
1: Bringing things back to the the shop floor, if you will, at at Confirm, you've recently opened uh, a new 5G testbed. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, how that is working out and the kind of applications you expect to see from it?
2: Yes, so so this is a a really good example of sort of a key enabling technology that will help underpin different projects with different industries. So the 5G network itself, it's, it's a private 5G network and it basically designed really to enable projects to happen. And the advantage really of it is that it's, I mean, like any sort of wireless communication system, it's it's wireless, it's a hub on the wall, so you don't see too much about it. But what what you you get is the speed of the connectivity, but also the density of the connectivity. And what I mean by that is, so for a manufacturing operation, you might have a production line. You could have five or 6,000 sensors on a production line all in close, close proximity to each other. And so those sensors are, you know, if they're communicating wirelessly uh, to a 5G network to, to get the data up into a central position so you can make decisions on the data and you can control the production line, you know, those, those sensors interfere with each other and so on. So the beauty about 5G networks is that they the density of sensing you can have Uh, in in particular so you can get it so it's not it's not just the speed of transmission of the data which is very important by the way but it's it's also the density of the number of nodes you can have on the system and that's very attractive from a manufacturing point of view and again it won't be a a silver bullet or a panacea that will solve all problems it might have to be used in conjunction with other systems like wired systems or even uh wi-fi 6 for example so it'll be a case of what's best for the application and you might need some 5g sensing applications where you need very fast transfer data and high no density, high sensor density in, in case of manufacturing. But that could be coupled with wired information coming in from wired sensors, uh, also with uh, Wi-Fi 6 and so on. So I think we see a world in the future where it won't just be 5G, uh, it'll be a combination of you know, Wi-Fi wired and 5G and, and and anything in between there. So it's going to be um, an interesting thing. So the types of projects that we, that we have, already looked at is is uh, we just got this installed in in sort of you know uh, last late last year so it's early days but what we're trying to to do we we have run robots now sort of um what we call um, collaborative robots off the 5g network so a very fast transfer of data to that robot so there's nothing the the robot's powered it's 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 on a kind of a An AI, an AIG, so it's 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 moving on a a mobile platform, and it's receiving its control signals from the five G network. So there's a battery; the whole thing is powered by a battery. If you can imagine, it it looks basically like a you know a trolley with wheels, and it's been and has a sort of a a collaborative robot, a robot arm on top, and essentially it moves around. It can do an operation, but that that gets control. It's it's receiving its control messages wirelessly through a five G network, so it's been controlled by by a network a 5g network and, and and that's that's a very exciting development as we go forward to the future factory where we're going to have lots of robots working in collaboration with humans so we're going to need lots of sensing capability to detect a for so so the robot systems it's to do with safety ultimately but the ro- robot systems can detect um detect the presence of a da- uh, detect sort of hazards in the factory and also detect the uh, factory environment and also most importantly. Um, detect the humans and because the humans are moving they're not static in the factory so the robot might be moving and the human might be moving and uh, the robots need to be able to detect the humans and and be able to react accordingly to make sure they don't you know uh, interact with the human in terms of a collision or something like that so really fast sensing capability is really important there and that's going to be where 5G I think will play a big role uh, when we have sort of humans and, and robots collaborating in the future factory.
0: And that was Professor Conor McCarthy, Director of Confirmed Chatting with Niall Kitson. That's it for our show this week. Do remember, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie or listen to us each week online or Fridays with RTE Radio 1 Extra. On to next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson, thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes Or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by
2: digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.